0: And all of that because we've always got gloves on, we've always got helmets and you know face shields. Um, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's good to be good to see everybody today, and and uh, want to welcome you guys who are at home still worshiping with us, and over in the pavilion, and uh, seeing seeing people here. It's such a such a great thing, and it's such a good morning. Um, we started our series in Jonah um, last week, a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're going to be in Jonah chapter two, so if you have your Bibles, you can, you can open that up. But um, I was thinking a little bit about prayer because Jonah chapter two contains a prayer that Jonah prayed, and I was thinking about what kind of things do we tend to pray for most? And so I, I was looking through and doing some research and finding some interesting things that Americans pray for. And uh, so these were some of the top things that I I discovered that Americans pray for. Um, The number one thing that Americans pray for is to win the lottery. Um, And so there's a lot of prayer going on about winning the lottery. Uh, Another thing that that, uh, Americans pray for, which I think is pretty telling, is to have success in something you put almost no effort into. (laughs) I'm wondering if that was like a lot of students <laughs> about tests. Um, but uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, there's, um, this one was, seemed a little bit severe, um, but that God would avenge someone who hurt you or a loved one. Um, that one maybe gets a little darker. Um, and then here's one that uh, I guess there's not a lot of praying about this lately, but um, typically um, there's a lot of prayer that goes on about our favorite team to win a game. Um, I, I think I've heard I think I've heard that prayed for in churches before, um, but uh, kind of interesting. Um, this is one that my mom I, I remember so clearly. My mom always prayed this prayer when we pulled into a parking lot um, to find a good parking space. I remember hearing my mom say when I was little, and she would just say, "Oh Jesus, just open!" Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's a spot. <laughs> I just remember that all the time. Um, and then the last one, which I think. I'd say I probably am guilty of is uh, I've prayed and with apparently many other Americans prayed to not get caught speeding, um, which I don't, I'm not sure how much God really is going to honor that prayer. Um, but, but it's so interesting because uh, in poll, this was a, actually a few years ago, but um, I would assume it's probably even higher today because of... Um, just, just everyone is in some degree of crisis, that 79% of American adults say that they pray, uh, and this was kind of over a, a scope of three months, but 79 adults, American adults, say that they pray um, at least occasionally. Uh, and I think part of it is prayer is really hardwired into us as human beings. Um, and, and I think it comes out in people praying Sometimes it comes out in people like wishing for something, but it's almost kind of in a hopeful, prayerful type way. But I think that's just why kind of hardwired into our human consciousness. Uh, Even those who don't believe in God will say something or utter something or at some point do something that resembles prayer, Um, whether it's a hopeful statement or it's a wish or it's a, a, a prayer. And so this is actually where we find Jonah today. Remember that, that as we kind of walk through Jonah and we've walked through it so far in chapter one, what we've seen is, is that Jonah is doing his very best to avoid God. He's been in this storm, he's been uh, on this ship, and, and all the other people around him have been praying, but Jonah has, has not actually pursued God in any way yet. But now we find a whole chapter that's, that contains Jonah's prayer. And, and so, again, until now, he successfully avoided interacting with God, but now he's in this dire situation and he breaks his silence. And, and so, I, I think what we wanna, I want, what we wanna see is, is, is just thinking about this prayer that we see in Jonah chapter two. Um, in, in verse one, it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish And then it follows with this this really pretty, significant, seemingly deep and impressive and, and maybe heartfelt prayer. I mean, you can tell he's very emotional in the moment. And he says, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And so as we kind of read through that we we kind of we kind of see that that Jonah obviously was in a position where he was he was pretty pretty down and, and pretty I would say even depressed to a point and and not super hopeful throughout the whole thing but but he cried out to God. And so at first glance this seems like a pretty solid prayer of someone who's realized that they have made a horrible mistake. That what their decisions leading up to this have been bad. And now it's time to change. And, and, and so in, in, in really verses two through six, you see Jonah crying out to God, which is a good thing. In verse seven, Jonah says that he remembers God, which is always a good thing. Have you ever been in that situation where, where maybe you're, you're going through something and all of a sudden you remember, oh, you know, I, I, should, I should seek God on this. <laughs> it's always good to remember that moment. And then in verses 8 and 9, he promises to obey God. Again, which, which that, that structure of crying out to God, remembering that God is there, and, and promising to obey God seems like a really good process. And really, this is the, this, even the structure of it is just this beautiful Hebrew prayer, or, or almost poem, or even a psalm that's very much like what we see in the psalms, of desperation and salvation, But here's what we have to recognize with this prayer that we have in chapter two of Jonah, is the context is really, really important. So looking at the context of the whole book, which is only, you know, four chapters, chapter one really is about Jonah's rebellion. It's about how Jonah heard clearly from God and said, you know what, nope, I'm not having any of it. And then chapter two is this prayer, and then when we move to the chapter 3 there is this corrected behavior on Jonah's behalf. Jonah actually ends up going to Nineveh. But then in chapter 4 there is this reveal of the state of his heart. And in chapter 4 we see that Jonah's heart is not in this at all. So we see rebellion A prayer for rescue, behavior that seems to be in line with what God has asked. And then in chapter 4, we see the state of Jonah's heart, which is a lack of gratitude, a lack of compassion, a lack of empathy, and really a, a lack of really believing that God is really good. And so we need to see chapter two in this prayer in the, in the context of the bigger picture. And so let's just walk through this for, for here, here this morning and, and examine this prayer. And, and I don't necessarily know what was going on exactly in Jonah's heart but we do again see from the context and the things that he says in chapter one and what he says in chapter four and how he carries out his obedience in chapter three, we have a pretty good idea of of what's going on inside of Jonah. And so in, in verse two, in verse two, as he begins a prayer, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol or, or of, of, of basically Sheol is that idea of hell. Out of the belly of hell, I cried and you heard my voice. There basically what he says is, is he said, I thought I was going to die. And so in that moment, I cried out to God. All this time, I haven't cried out to God, I haven't recognized God, but in that moment where I really believed it was over for me, I cried out to God. And, and it says, and God listened. <laughs> he says, I cried out to God and God listened, even though he didn't deserve God to listen to him, but God listened anyway. And I think it's interesting, a lot of times when, when we're in difficult situations, when we're in, we're in situations, whether it's of our own doing or, or we don't necessarily deserve it, oftentimes we ask God, we, we make that statement, we ask that question in the midst of it, we say, where is God in this? You ever been at that point where things have been happening and you say, has God missed something? Has God forgotten about me? Where is God in this whole thing? Because it just seems like if he was here, it would be different. But notice that Jonah never, says that God has abandoned him. In fact, for Jonah, it's the opposite issue, that God is way too close. (laughs) In fact, Jonah, throughout all of this, is kind of like, God, you are way too much in my space. I'm just trying to put some distance, yet God is there the whole time. And so in Jonah's difficulty, in his crisis, he's not saying, God, why have you abandoned me? He's kind of like, God, just let me go. And so Jonah cries out to God, and God listens And I think in that moment, Jonah's thinking to himself, maybe, and and maybe according to what he says here, it seems like he's saying, okay, you know what? I know that I I basically wanted to die. I said, throw me overboard. There's no way I'm gonna survive in this this storm, in this ocean, in this water. I would rather be dead than obey God. And I think he's having second thoughts at this point and saying, you know what? Maybe death isn't worse than obedience. (laughs) And I think that's something that maybe like, if you have young children, that's something they should learn. that you know what? obedience is worth it. There's other things that are, that are far worse than obedience. And so you know maybe that's something that we, we do with our kids. But then we move on to verse three and, and he says in verse three, he says, "For you cast me into the deep. If you remember, it was the sailors who did the physical act of throwing him, but he says, "For you, Cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Here's something that's really important that Jonah recognized in this process. He had this heightened sense of God's presence and God's activity. He said, God, you are the one who actually threw me over. I realize you used the, the 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 Philistine sailors in the boat. They were they were the tool you used, but God, you were the one who has me in this situation. And He says, God, you your waves, that the ocean is yours, that the water is yours, and the waves that were crashing over me, as I thought, I'm not going to survive. And maybe obedience is better than death. That God, those were those were your things at your command. And he recognizes, and again, he doesn't say that God was wrong in throwing him over in an act of discipline. He didn't say God was wrong in, in, in the actions that he took, but he recognizes God's righteous hand in the situation that he's in. And so then in verse four, we, we, we continue on, and he says, he says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple, which I think is kind of a funny part of this prayer, because he says, I was driven away from your sight. Really? Who was doing the driving? <laughs> I'm not sure God drove him away from anyone. I think he ran away, but he, he says, I was driven away from your sight, and then he says, but I will look to you. He, you see, this was that, he, he thought this was what he wanted. He thought, you know, just throw me over and my life is done, I don't care anymore. And then all of a sudden, he says, all right, maybe a broken relationship with God isn't what I want before I see God face to face. I mean, it's that moment that he says, okay, I'm gonna die and now I'm gonna stand before Yahweh. Maybe, maybe, could we do this over? <laughs> could we have a second shot at this? Because because maybe this isn't a good situation for me to be completely rebellious and disobedient to God and then end up seeing him face to face. And, and so it's when he says, I look to your holy temple, that's basically just a, a Hebrew way of saying, and God, I will fall on my knees and I will pray to you. There was that, that idea in Israel that, that they would look toward the temple and pray to Yahweh And so he basically is thinking in his mind that maybe coming back to God right now is kind of attractive. (laughs) And isn't it it interesting that when we walk through difficult things and maybe we're walking in those things because of sin and all of a sudden as we face those consequences we start to think, you know what? You know, maybe... Maybe, oh, maybe coming back to God is more attractive than the situation that I'm in right now. Maybe obeying God, maybe surrendering to Jesus is a better idea than what I've been trying to pull off. And so, and so that's what he says. He says, I'm going to pray. And so the, for the first time in this narrative, Jonah actually seeks God and, and calls out to him and prays to God. In verses five and six, we we catch up and he says, the water's closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. So he realizes I'm dying, I'm not gonna live. He says, weeds were wrapped around my head, which just sounds like a horrible, horrible situation. And then he says, at the roots of the mountains, the lowest place that I can go, equating that to like being completely separated from God. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This idea of being imprisoned and and trapped. He says, yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God, that, that Yahweh himself has rescued me. And, and, so, and so he sees this and he says, he says, look, he says, I'm at the threshold of death and I really don't want to die now. And the only hope is that God could rescue me. And, and here's the thing that, that I want us to understand this morning. And I think this is super important. That my circumstances, your circumstances are not reflective of God's commitment. And I think that's a super important thing that we need to understand and know as people of God. That your circumstances, that my circumstances, are not reflective of God's commitment. In fact, you know what is reflective of God's commitment? The life and resurrection of Jesus determined God's commitment to us. And so it's, it's easy for us sometimes to think when we're in a difficult place, when we're in a situation that we don't like or don't want to be in, that, that God is missing something. That God isn't maybe as committed to us as we would like Him to be because we're in a hard situation. And and I think the opposite is also true that when we're in a good situation and when things are going well, we tend to think, oh, I have favor with God. And we allow our circumstances to tell us God's level of commitment. And we have to be really, really careful. Because just because things are going well in your life does not mean that you're in a place of obedience and surrender to Jesus. And just because you're in a really difficult place, a place that is a struggle, it doesn't mean that you're in a place where you're not surrendered to Jesus. We have to be careful. that We do not allow our circumstance to inform us of God's commitment. What informs us of God's commitment is the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And there is no ebbing or ups and downs of God's commitment to his people. He is always 100% committed 100% of the time. The problem is we need to figure out where we are. And our life circumstances don't always aren't always helpful in telling us how we're doing. And so so here here Jonah is in this situation and and God spared Jonah from what Jonah knew he deserved. And so here, I think in this prayer, in verse six, we're at this moment where it looks like Jonah is about to confess and repent. Notice that he's not really confessed anything at this point. He's just talked about how rotten things are for him. He hasn't repented at this point by saying, God, I'm sorry for running the opposite direction. So he hasn't confessed anything or repented. What he has done is he's lamented and said, "I man, it is so bad. I am in such a bad situation. And I know that God is the only way out. And I know that God is the only one who can rescue. And so before we move forward, I want to make sure that we know what repentance is. Because that's what we would expect next in this prayer. You see, repentance in the Bible means experiencing a change of mind and a change of heart that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all of our praise and all of our obedience. That's what repentance is. See, repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is woefully short of repentance. It's not the same thing. To apologize and to repent are two different things. Apologizing is saying, I'm sorry that I did that or that that happened to you, but there's no change in my thinking or my heart. Saying I'm sorry is actually, and apologizing is actually a pretty low commitment thing to do, (laughs) Because all it is is saying, you know what, I apologize, I feel bad about that this happened, and so I'm sorry, but it doesn't change anything for me moving forward. Repentance is not only feeling that emotion and feeling that empathy and feeling that compassion and being sorry, but it includes a change in how I'm thinking, a change in how my heart is, and it is aligned to how God thinks, and it is aligned with God's heart. Do you see the difference between apology and repentance? Repentance is a much deeper ask and a much deeper commitment. Repentance, in fact, was the first demand of Jesus' ministry on earth. He began by saying, repent. Repent and be baptized. That was his first demand of his public ministry. And repentance is a call to radical inward change toward God and toward others. Repentance is this radical call for me to change inwardly my thinking and my heart condition toward God and toward the people around me. See, we can say, we're sorry for something that we've done or sorry for something that's happened but if we don't change how we think and how our hearts are toward that person or those people then we haven't repented at all in fact it's almost like we've said as you know sorry not sorry <laughs> because if if i'm really sorry and i'm leading to repentance then there will be a visible change in my life You see, repentance is an internal change of mind and heart rather than mere sorrow for sin or improvement of behavior. Because you see, we can say I'm sorry, and we can be sorry and sad because we sinned, and we can do things a little differently coming out of it, but still our thinking and our hearts are the same. See in the word, in the Greek word that, in the word that even they use that Jesus uses for repentance is, uh, metanoio, which meta the prefix is a meaning move meaning movement or change. And noeo, is 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 something that refers to the mind and its thoughts. And perceptions and dispositions and purposes. So, really, repentance, the word itself, the way it's constructed, is that it is movement or change in my mind, my thoughts, my perceptions, my dispositions, and my purpose. Repentance goes pretty deep, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, that's an all in thing. That's not something I can do halfway, that's a big deal. That's major commitment. In Luke chapter three, Jesus has this run in with, with this, the, the crowds and with some religious leaders and, and this is how, what happens. In, starting in verse seven, he says this. He, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Not just do something, but bear fruits that is in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Don't rely on your nationality to make you feel worth something. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for, children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Jesus says bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. That you see, repentance is something that informs our behavior. If we are not in a repentant state, then our activities, our behavior, and the fruit that comes with our life is lacking something. It's kind of like if you ever bought like strawberries in the middle of the winter, and you're like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're okay. But then you get strawberries like now, <laughs> and you're kind of like, wow, these are way better Than the strawberries I had in the winter out of season. That's basically what Jesus is saying here that that our fruit without repentance doesn't taste that great. It's not worth that much. And, and, And so, you see, repentance is what happens inside of us that leads us to the fruit of new behavior. And here's the thing about our behavior and repentance it is possible to have a new behavior without repentance. And that puts us in a bad place. Okay, so are we clear on what repentance is? We understand what repentance is. Now look, let's go back to the text, verse 7. Here's what here's what Jonah says in verse 7. He says, "When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple." Okay, so we're not, it doesn't sound like we're quite to repentance yet, does it? It's, it's more, it seems like he's still focused on his situation, his circumstances, and, and what's going on in his life presently than what he's done to, to end up in this scenario. And so he says, I remembered the Lord. And he said, my prayer went up to the Lord. So, so there's, it seems like there's some focus on him still. And, and so the question when we're reading this prayer in verse seven is, is, is this, does this sound like a prayer of confession and repentance? Or is, is it maybe a light pat on the back like, now I remembered the Lord. Woo, good for me. And then, and then I started praying. Man, it's a good thing I started praying. I am glad I started praying to God because you know, that's the only way out of this situation that I'm in. Let's read ahead to verse verse eight. Maybe that'll help see where he's he's coming to repentance. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who who pay regards to idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I mean, that's a very Bible-y thing to say, right? (laughs) But what's he saying there? Is this a recognition of his own idolatry of himself, that he was paying regards to himself and what he wanted rather than God? So is this a recognition of his own idolatry or is this an appeal to his own self-righteousness? So let me ask you this. Who in the story so far would be characterized as regarding vain idols? who regards vain idols in this story? Well, let's back up to the boat. The boat was from Joppa, a Philistine city. There were likely Philistine sailors in the boat. What god did the Philistines prefer? Well, one of their gods was Dagon. He was defeated numerous times in the Old Testament by the one true god, but Dagon was one of their gods, a vain idol. In fact, he was just this little idol that fell over in God's presence. And so if you're, if you're talking about people who are characterized by regarding vain idols, then you're talking about the Philistines. And you're also talking about the people that God called Jonah to go to, those who lived in Nineveh. So in, in, in verse eight, do you think Jonah's talking about himself or is this an indictment of the sailors whose lives he put in jeopardy and the Ninevites who he doesn't want to go to. Let's read the next verse, and maybe that will will help us understand who he's talking about. Verse nine, he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Anytime you see a but, it's a contrast. So he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, on the other hand, are not like them. And I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you that what I vowed I will pay. It seems pretty clear if you really look at what he's saying is he's actually indicting the sailors in Nineveh and he's saying, but I'm different than them. I don't sacrifice the steadfast love of the Lord because I, with thanksgiving, will sacrifice if you'll remember something, he doesn't say, I'll obey. He says, I'll sacrifice first. And it's interesting because if you go back to King Saul, when he disobeyed God and was confronted by the prophet, the prophet said, and, and then Saul said, well, you know what? I'm gonna sacrifice all of these things that I disobeyed with. Saul says, or Samuel says to him, God doesn't want sacrifices he wants your obedience. You can't sacrifice to God and withhold obedience. And so it seems like Jonah's in that same vein. And he says, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he says, I'll sacrifice to you with my thanksgiving. I'll be really grateful that you saved me. And, what I, and I will pay what I vowed. I will, I will pay you back, God. I will go to Nineveh. And then it's kind of like he says, salvation belongs to the Lord, which just seems like a really good Christian-y thing to say (laughs) at the end of my prayer that maybe isn't quite the great heartfelt, repentant prayer that I thought it was. And here's the thing, I, I don't know, I don't know what really Jonah intended. I don't know the intent of his heart, but it seems pretty clear from the words he used. In fact, it's pretty interesting. Whose prayer does Jonah resemble? In Matthew all right, in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, we read this, this, this parable that Jesus tells, this scenario that Jesus tells about these two people. And he talks about this guy who prays a prayer, and he says, God, thank you that I am not like, and he sees this beggar. Thank you that I'm not a sinner like this man next to me. And Jesus says, but this, 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 this sinner, this beggar down on, on, the, on the ground says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Whose prayer does Jonah resemble more? The guy saying, Thank God that I'm not like these people, or the man who is on his knees saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't know where in this prayer Jonah says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He does kind of say, God have mercy on me, but he doesn't really say, On me, a sinner. And so then in verse 10, it wraps up, and the last verse, which I think is pretty interesting, says, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. I don't think that's a situation you want to be in, being vomited out by a fish. That sounds pretty, fish are bad enough on their own. Like, fish smell bad. How much worse does fish vomit smell? Like, I feel like it's upping the ante there. And so he says, and this fish obeyed God, which Jonah could hardly do, but the fish was smarter than Jonah. So the fish obeyed God and vomits Jonah out on dry land. Here's, here's what I would, I would suggest. Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three, verse 14 Look at, what, look at what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Then, in verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. What's interesting about that is that it is the same word in the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's used in Jonah 2.10 about the fish vomiting Jonah, it's the same word is used in in Revelation 3.16 about God saying, I spew you out of my mouth. What's interesting is that there's a parallel there. Jesus is talking to the church saying, you better get with it. Because you are neither hot nor cold. And like the fish in Jonah's day, I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. You see, God knows the mind and the heart of Jonah and whether or not Jonah was responding in true repentance as the rest of the story unfolds. And so here's what I want to leave you with. What we learn from this Chapter 2 in Jonah, and the context that it's written, is number one is this, that my circumstances are not reflective of God's commitment or his closeness. Know that wherever you are today, your circumstances do not dictate God's commitment or his closeness to you. Believe that because God is always there. His commitment is shown in the sacrifice that he made of his son on the cross. The second thing is this, that repentance is more than just saying sorry. It is a fundamental change in my mind and my heart that corresponds with God's character and results in a different behavior than before. And so here's the questions that I'd leave you with. Number one, do I see God in my disappointing circumstances or do I let my circumstances determine my view of God? Where are you today? And the second question is this, do I participate in true repentance or is it more of a sorry, not sorry? We're gonna participate in communion this morning and um, as you prepare for, for, for communion as the band comes back up right now, I want you to think about this idea of repentance. Are you and I, are we living in a state of repentance is your thought process and your heart constantly being moved to think and feel the way god feels there are a lot of opportunities to evaluate that right now are you thinking and feeling the way god feels toward the culture in that we live are you taking your marching orders from our culture Are you seeing people that you struggle with? Are you seeing them the way God sees them? Are you thinking about them the way God thinks about them? Or are you in a place where you say, hey, sorry, that's not my problem. Do we live? You see, repentance should be the character and the context in which we as Jesus followers live. Prepare your hearts now as we as we prepare for communion this morning. And I would ask you to just kind of silently pray and prepare yourself and ask those questions.